Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. Father, we thank you so much for the life-changing freedom that we find in the good news of what Christ did for us in dying on the cross. And God, I also understand that in my own life and that I know that in each of our lives here, God, we still experience that slavery to sin and we still live in the darkness of this world. And God, at times our, our minds are filled with questions as we think about your goodness and your grace towards us. And so God, I pray in every way as you speak to us this morning, God, as you speak from your word and the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you apply that freedom to our lives, that freedom that we have already won fully in Christ despite our status, if our faith is in him, despite the way we come in here feeling this morning. Lord, would you help us to experience that freedom that we have fully in him? God, thank you for this time. We pray this all in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. You can grab your seat. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, you can open it up to Genesis 38. And if you are new with us this morning, you have a privilege of walking through maybe one of the weirdest chapters in all of Scripture this morning. And I want to let you know, we don't do this every morning, but as a church, we found ourselves doing it more and more frequently because we are a church that believes in what we call expositional preaching, which means that we, we preach God's Word book by book, verse by verse. And we don't skip over anything because we believe that God has something profitable for us in every verse of Scripture. And in fact, one commentator that I have come to appreciate and adore looked at this chapter, and he he kind of writes a devotional commentary, and he closes this chapter with saying, there's nothing really devotional here. And I want, to encourage, I want to convince you this morning that that's not true. That from this chapter, as we mine deep into, honestly, what are some awkward subjects, we will find the riches of God's Word. And so I hope that your Bibles are open to Genesis 38. You know, as we think about our lives, isn't it true that I feel like now more than ever, the, the list of things that worry us is long. Don't you feel like that? Like if we were to go around and, and maybe pull people's minds in here and say, you know, what's the thing that maybe, you know, really worries you? I'm sure that we would have a long list of answers. There are many of us that look at this culture and are maybe worried about different political ideologies. Maybe we look at the housing market and the economy and inflation, and, and, and that's the thing that, that worries us, and we wonder kind of, kind of what end could this ever come from? Could this ever come to? We look at the global conflict that our world is experiencing. We look at the advance of technology and, and how AI is chasing many of our jobs. By the way, you can go onto uh, an AI website, and you can make a whole sermon for yourself. And so am I afraid? A little bit. Yeah, I'm a little bit afraid. Some of us have maybe personal concerns. Maybe it's our health. Maybe it's our career. I feel like I'm talking to more and more people on a weekly basis that that because of the way that society is shifting, they feel like their careers are on the line if they don't believe a certain worldview. Maybe the worries that you hold are in your family and in the salvation of your children. Needless to say, we could go on with lists and lists and lists of worries that we look at day to day and wonder, how is this story going to come to an end? What is it that is needed in order to redeem this worry that I have? Many of us come to the church with with sort of this expectation that that the church will fix our specific worry. We, We have this worry and we're coming to church saying, God, I need you to do that. And my question is, how can the church do that? How When there are so many different things, so many issues that are so much larger than Redemption Newmarket, how can the church be involved in the redemption of these things that we worry about? Well, the place that we find ourselves in Genesis is really the same as we walk into Genesis 38. We have just started the life of Joseph. And you'll remember if you were with us last week that Genesis 37, it started or or, or it ended 
in a very critical moment. Joseph had been sold into slavery, and we read in verse 36 of chapter 37, we read that, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning, you know that God's people, the family of Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob, were to become the tribes of God's people, Israel, and they were to inherit the land of Canaan. But here you have Joseph, one, a critical one of the 12 sons, who is now enslaved in Egypt. We look at the story and we say, things are not good. And we're going to read here in Genesis 38 that another one of Jacob's sons, Judah, while being in the right place in Canaan, is enslaved to sin. And so here we have a child of Jacob, Joseph, who is a righteous child in the wrong place. And here we have a child of Jacob, who is Judah, who is an unrighteous person in the right place. And the question we look at as as we see both of these stories is this, what's going to solve these problems? How is redemption going to be brought to Joseph? How is redemption going to be brought to Judah? What's the solution? Now, we're going to read Genesis 38, and and many of you have read Genesis 38 before. You know, you start a Bible reading program, and you get to Genesis 37, and you get to the life of Joseph, and you're all excited because Joseph is one of the most exciting stories in all of Scripture. And so you're all excited, and you get one chapter in, and then all of a sudden, it's no longer about Joseph. Now it's about Judah and Tamar, and it's an incredibly weird story, and it feels kind of like it's a random insertion into Genesis, like Moses was writing the story, and then he thought, oh, I forgot about Judah and Tamar, so let me just throw that in the middle. feels a little bit like a bad movie where you're like, well, that scene was a waste of my time, and yet what I want you to see is that God has a purpose here. God is hitting the brakes on Joseph's problem to insert us into Judah's problem to show us that as God solves Judah's problem, he is showing us the redemptive power that will bring all of our problems to an end. He's showing us the great need that every one of us has here. This is the beauty of the gospel, that that what we find God provides for Judah is exactly what we discover Joseph needs in his situation. And as we look at God providing for Judah and Joseph, we look at that story 2,000 years later, and you and I are going to see the very thing that we need. It's the gospel of God's grace. It's the grace of God being lavished over us in our situation. This is what we need. The same thing Judah needed, it's the same thing Joseph needs, and it's the same thing we need to hear and believe the gospel of God's grace. Well, this is the story of God's grace, and so let's read it together in Genesis 38. You can follow along with me. Genesis 38, verse 1. It says this, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Anam, which is on the road to Timnah. 
For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from her woman's hand, he did not find her. And when he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. So Judah replied, let her keep, let her keep the things as her own. We should be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immortality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. I want you to see God's grace is really dripping all over this story, and it's revealing to us the greatest need of our day and and the the thing that will bring resolution to our greatest problems, God's grace. And the first thing I want you to see is grace for me. We're going to see grace for me this morning. We're going to see grace for others this morning. And we're going to see that only grace can only come from God this morning. And the first thing I want you to see is, is grace that's needed for me. Now, we come into Judah 38, and really you could summarize this chapter by, by maybe this heading, more people, more problems. We've been walking through Genesis for a while now, and we have met a whole host of different people, and one of the things that you come to expect is that whenever you meet a new person, the chances are, if you're a betting person, that they are going to be messed up, that they are going to have sin. In fact, the very... The, the, the very Uh, reason that we're at Judah is because of all of Jacob's sons, in the order that they had been born, all of them had already messed it up. The oldest, the one that God's spiritual blessing should have gone through was Reuben. But you'll remember in Genesis 35, 22, that Reuben slept with Bilhah, who was Jacob's wife. Reuben slept with his mother-in-law and thereby disqualified himself for the spiritual blessing. And so next in line was actually Simeon and Levi. But you'll remember then in Genesis 36 that when their sister Dinah was given over to the Canaanites as a sex slave, it was Simeon and Levi who sought justice themselves and murdered all of those people. And so now we come to the fourth son, to Judah, Now, some of you in here, maybe you have four siblings in all, and you're the youngest, you're the fourth, and so you're saying, yeah, I know, the first three are really messed up. This has been the same for all time, and and I'm, I'm, I'm the blessed one. I'm the righteous one. And I want you to know that Judah is a mess as well. And the question that we come to is that the, 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 line is going to stop at Judah. Judah will be the one through whom the spiritual blessings, covenant blessings of Abraham travel. And so the question for us is, what was wrong with Reuben, Simeon, and Levi? What's the difference between those three and Judah? Because they all dropped the ball. And the only answer that we have is this, that it's God's grace. It's God's grace. God in his electing, choosing grace had chosen Judah to be the one through whom eventually the seed of Jesus would come. 
And so we see Judah's story, and, and especially in these first verses, we see Judah's need for grace. We see the gaping holes of his life in which God has to pour and lavish his grace on him. Notice in verse 1, it says that it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now, this is trouble. And in fact, part of what Moses is doing here is comparing Judah as an unrighteous man to Joseph, who was a righteous man. In chapter 39, next week, as we, do, as we study Joseph and, and Potiphar, we're going to find a, no, a number of striking similarities. And one of the similarities is that in thir- 39 verse 1, it's Joseph who, after Judah has experienced moral failure with Tamar, it's Joseph who goes down to Egypt, just like Judah went down to Canaan and finds himself in the presence of Potiphar and Potiphar's wife who attempts to tempt Joseph to sexual seduction. And Joseph stands strong. And so here we have in Judah a failure. We have in Joseph a success. And Moses has put this story here for our comparison. Now, if you've been with us in Genesis and you've, you've walked along God's people up until this point, you know that when it comes to the boxing match between God's people and Canaan, well, Canaan is undefeated, isn't it? Canaan keeps messing up God's people. God's people are supposed to inherit the land, but every time they come into Canaan, they mess it up. And so there there should be this, this narrative suspense building in us as Judah, it says, went down away from his brothers, away from the people of God into the land of Canaan. Verse 2, we're told that Judah, it says he came here to find himself a Canaanite wife. Now, all of us who are familiar with Genesis should look at Judah and on that verse, give a big wrong buzzer sound. Wrong idea, Judah. Look at your history for a moment. For Judah to go down to Canaan and look for a Canaanite wife is to disregard God's word. All throughout Genesis, God has been calling his people to marry within his covenant community. Judah disregards God's word when he knew better. You'll remember Genesis 6. Remember another pretty weird passage that we walked through as a church where the sons of God, and there's different interpretations on that, but we landed on that being fallen angels. And whether you think that's fallen angels or Canaanites, the meaning is still the same. The sons of God came down and slept with the daughters of men, the people of God, so that they intermarried. And that was what prefaced the worldwide destruction of the flood. You'll remember Abraham and Hagar and the devastation that was invited into the family of God when Abraham chose to try to take a shortcut and and married a wife from the Canaanites. You'll remember Esau, whose mother longed so greatly for both Jacob and Esau to marry within the covenant community of God. But Esau, deranged from his family, chose to disobey and married a Canaanite woman and invited destruction into his life. Now, all of those are ridiculous, but you'll also remember that just two chapters ago, Jacob, wasn't Jacob one of the brothers who, when his sister Dinah went to the Canaanites and then in Canaan, was raped by the Canaanites. It was Jacob who looked at them and said, it's not proper for God's people to intermarry with the Canaanites. Judah was right there. Judah was one of the people pointing his fingers at the Canaanites saying, your people can't marry my people. And yet here, two chapters later, we find Judah is doing the exact same thing. This is what God's people do. They fall into the same trap time and time time again. And I wonder if you look at this story, and like me, you, you find there's a big similarity here. Don't you find that, that in a lot of your Christian life, you know exactly what is wrong. You know exactly what you're not supposed to do, and yet you keep doing it again. You know that your anger will never fix the situation. It only estranges those that are near to you. You know that your worry and anxiety has not solved anything for you, but only added sleepless nights and sadness to your life. 
you know that going to that website in that dark room will never truly satisfy you, and yet God's people are sucked into the same sinful trap time and time again. And the question that we ask as we come to Genesis 38, and God's people have messed up so many times, the question we have is this, how exhaustible is God's grace? How much grace does God have for his people? Listen, I know the answer for myself because I have very young children, and I wake up with them in the morning, and they get up around seven, and I, you know, I've just done my quiet time with the Lord. It's been so peaceful. The birds are squawking a little too loud right now and a little too early, but they're squawking, and it's beautiful, and I've been with the Lord, and my kids wake up, and I say, this is the day that the Lord has made, kids. What a wonderful day this is going to be, And then it feels like an eternity, and my grace for them is exhausted. I've got no patience left, and they're getting on my nerves, and I say, okay, well, we got to be close to the end of the day. I look at the clock. It's 9.30 a.m., and I say, i got a whole lot of day left and not a lot of grace left. My grace is very exhaustible, but what we're discovering as we walk through the book of Genesis is that God's grace is inexhaustible. There is not a single time in your life That after you have sinned, if you turn to the Lord in true repentance, you will not find a God whose arms are wide open for you. Think about the Lord's Supper. It was instituted by Jesus himself. He said, do this as often as you meet together. He didn't say, hey, just do this until you got your life figured out together because then you're going to be good, okay? It should only take like seven Lord's Suppers and then you're good. Jesus had this understanding that the the people that he was coming to redeem until he came to glorify him would need to come to this table again and again and again and again to say this, God, I messed it up again. I messed it up again. But praise God, there is a table for me. There is blood that cleanses me of my sin. There is flesh that has been pierced for my penalty. God's grace is inexhaustible. This is the glory of God's grace. You go back to it time and time and time again, and it's a fountain that never runs dry for you. The more you go, the more God is glorified in your forgiveness. And some of you need to hear that this morning because you're so discouraged by your own sin. You know the weight of your sin. You know the weight of your failure. You keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And God is here to tell you this morning through his word that he is a God of inexhaustible grace. His grace is for those who fail time and time again, who cannot get their act together, who cannot do it themselves. You need to run to him this morning. And in this moment, in the depths of your heart, turn to God and find his grace for you. Now, Judah, he's not just done wrong. Judah's motivated wrongly. Look what happens in verse 2. So fascinating if you think about the verbs in verse 2. It says, There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her, and he went in her. He saw, he took He went in. And so this unnamed daughter, this unnamed Canaanite wife of Judah, it says she conceived and bore and called his name Ur. This relationship totally lacks the Jacob-like romance. Remember when Jacob found Rachel? Remember the romance? Jacob was filled with love for Rachel. You remember Abraham and Sarah? As we've walked through Genesis, we have seen uh, husbands' love for wives on display. You remember Adam and Eve? This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But what we understand is that this unnamed woman to Judah is really just an object for his sexual pleasure. Jacob is motivated to go down to Canaan solely by sex and reputation. And this is instructive for us because it begs the question for us, what is it that causes you and I to do wrong? We have wrong actions in our life. We do wrong things in our life. What is it that causes it? And and the answer that we come to is that it's our motivations. This is what James is talking about in chapter 4 of his epistle. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? If you're new with us and you think it's crazy that we're in Genesis 38 this morning, well, you should have gone to James's church that he was writing to because people were punching each other out in the morning. It was UFC, MMA morning. Every Sunday morning, they'd put the circles in a big chair and start punching each other. And James writes to the church to say, what's causing this? He says this, is it not your passions? Is it not your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
The thing that causes our actions to be evil is that we are motivated by wrong. I mean, it sounds simple to say, but it's so important that we say it. We do wrong because we're motivated by wrong. This is why one of the foremost evidences of God's work in your life is that you actually begin to desire good things. You begin to desire to be in the presence of the Lord. You begin to desire to read God's word. At the heart level, your motives become God's glory. You begin to desire to be with God's people. And so God's doing this work in your heart. He's changing your motives. Parents, this is really important. The thing that you need to be looking for in your children, really practically, practically is motives. Your kids can get all the actions right. At a young age, they can figure out the Christianese. They can figure out what pleases you and what makes mom and dad so happy. And the thing you need to see is, are they actually motivated to seek the Lord by themselves? This is the problem. See, if, if our motive isn't for God, it can only invite destruction into our life. And it's so funny that time and time again, this, this threefold verb has come up of someone seeing something that they should, a forbidden fruit, taking it, and consuming it. It's the same thing that Eve did when she saw the forbidden fruit. She saw it, she desired it, and she ate it. And here Judah sees this woman, takes her, and goes into her. See, anytime our motive isn't for God, it can only invite destruction and death into our life. And so we have this example, this example right in front of us of the three sons that Judah has with this woman. In verse 6, we're told that the first, his name is Ur, and he takes a wife. But in verse 7, we're told that Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so he was put to death. Now, we're not told exactly what his sin was. We're not given the specifics, but we know that it was evil because of the other times that God has put people to death. You think of Noah and the destruction of the flood. The people's actions were evil, and so he sent a worldwide destructive flood. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah. He, was, he rained fire on them because their actions were evil, and so here Ur is put to death because his actions are evil. While we don't know what Ur did, we certainly know what Onan did. Onan was, after the death of Ur, was given to Tamar to fulfill the, a Leverite marriage duty. Now, this was a, a common occurrence in a day where familial riches was, was not by material possession. It was by uh, your offspring. And so for a woman to die without any offspring was essentially the worst of all curses. And so this, is, this provides the context for the book of Ruth, doesn't it? That if a woman were to be widowed to a deceased husband, it would be the brother of that husband that would come and give that woman offspring. And so Onan here is following a ritual that as we read this passage, we come to know is very near to God's heart to provide this woman Tamar a line. And yet we discover that it's the wrong person. In verse 9, we're told that not only was Judah selfish, Onan was selfish too. It says Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. See, Onan looked at this opportunity and he said, if, if Tamar has a son, then when Jacob dies, all of that material possessions that had been passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, it'll be split three ways. Onan was pretty good at math. He said it, it's a lot better to split something two ways than it is to split three ways. And he looks at the possible material gain he might get if Tamar doesn't have a child. And so we're told in verse 9 that instead of fulfilling his obligation to Tamar, he would waste the semen on the ground. Now this is an incredibly offensive thing to do to God if you think about the context of Genesis. Think about, in Genesis 1-3, to do you remember the two creation mandates that God had given to humanity? Remember that Adam and Eve were, be, were to be fruitful and multiply. This is, what we're doing right now is building a worldview of sex. This is really important for us to talk about. I think often in a church, you know what we do? We kind of just shy away from it. 
And it especially messes up our children and our teenagers because they get to a point where all of a sudden they're confronted with a secular worldview and they have no idea that the Bible speaks to these things. That the reason that sex is given to uh, married couples is because God created it as a good gift for them. And here we are in the Bible discovering a biblical worldview of sex. It is given to humanity in order to fulfill the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. So fittingly, it was given between a man and a woman because this was the work to be done. And so here you see Onan really is is spitting on that first creation mandate. Instead of being fruitful and multiplying, he's wasting the very thing that God gave him to multiply. He's wasting his very seed on the ground. Now, that's significant too because you remember the second creation mandate was for Adam and Eve to work and keep the ground. And one of the ways that you can interpret this passage, this verse in verse 9 is that, that Onan, he's ruining the ground. He's destroying the ground. Instead of using what God has given him to fulfill God's creation mandate, he is actually attacking God's kingdom. He's ruining the ground. And so you understand why God does what he does in verse 10. And he did, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Now listen, we look at what Onan has done, and I think on the surface level, many of us say, well, this isn't overly relevant to my situation right now. I hope, at least, that that's the case. And yet, as we look at the heart of Onan, who's building his own kingdom, who's more concerned about his own kingdom than he is about the kingdom of God, don't you and I find much that our heart is much like Onan's? That you and I, you know, you and I have taken the things that God has given to us, the talents, the time, the treasures. We've taken those things that God has given us, and instead of building up God's kingdom and using those gifts for the very reason that he had given them to us, we've used them to build up our own kingdom. I was thinking about this this week, and this is, I, I hope, it is very condemning to me as I thought about, you know, one of the ways that we build up our own kingdom. And I think that as I share it, it'll be condemning to you, but I want you to know that I share in the condemnation. Have you ever had the opportunity to share the gospel with someone? And you're there, it's like the, the, the moment is right. Sometimes it's like, you're, you know, it's like, it's T-ball. You're set up. But in that moment, this, you know, this fear kind of infiltrates you of what that person might think of you if you were to talk about Jesus in this moment. In that moment, this fear kind of fills up in you of, of the rejection that you might face talking about Jesus Christ. And, and in that moment, if, if we were to zoom in on your heart and my heart when that has happened, what's, what's happening at a heart level? Well, at a heart level, we are exalting the worth of our kingdom, of our reputation, over the worth of God's kingdom and of God's reputation. We are exalting our image over the worth of this person's soul and the belief that God might do something through our evangelism. And it's really condemning when you think about it at a heart level. And I, I share that to say that I feel the condemn- condemnation with you because I at times have done that as well. See, each of us, we've, we, we've at times have sought to build up our own kingdom. And then we look at what is deserved because of that, that Onan is put to death. And in this moment, you know what I'm, ho- I'm hoping you feel? Like, we need a lot of grace. Because we've built up our own kingdom, we deserve the same thing that Onan received. Wasn't, wasn't Adam and Eve told that if you eat of the fruit, the forbidden fruit, you know what's going to come? Death. That's all we're promised in our sinfulness. All we're promised is death. And you and I have sinned. And so all that we should receive from God, if if life was fair and just, all we should receive is death. You and I stand in the same position as Onan. We have lived for the wrong kingdom. And, And you and I right now in this moment, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit is kind of working this conviction of like, I need a lot of help. The practical application right now, heart level application is like, I'm screwed. I'm screwed. If God will not do something, I, in this moment, I have such need for grace. I have fallen so short of who God has called me to be. I'm screwed. Well, 
It's not only a grace for ourselves that we need. We also need a grace for the way that we have treated others. So the second thing I want you to see is that the world's need is a grace for others. See, it's not just that we have sinned with God. It's that we've also sinned against other people. That's why the great commandment, Jesus says, is to love God and to love other people. And what I want you to understand as we work through these next verses is that apart from God, you really cannot love people. Apart from a relationship with God, this vertical relationship with God, you cannot really horizontally love people. All you can really do, and we see this in this passage, is use other people to build up your kingdom. You can only really use other people to provide a service for you. And I want you to see this. Look look at one of the ways that sin causes us to use other people. It causes us to use other people for our satisfaction. And so this is what Judah does. Judah goes up to Timnah, and, and we're told by Moses that he's going to see his sheep shearers. When we look at that and knowing where the story goes, we say, yeah, right, Judah. Your wife has just died. Two of your sons died, and you didn't even mourn them, and you got over the death of your wife pretty quickly, and now you're going to Timnah, and there he finds a prostitute. And and we're not told for sure, but I, I, I assume here that this is what he's going to look for. Judah's desire with Tamar, as Tamar dresses herself to be a prostitute, Judah's desire is pure physical satisfaction. And you see how how great the desire is and what he's willing to give for it. First, he offers a goat, which in that day is a great amount of currency, but then he's willing to even give his own personal possessions. He's willing to give his signet, his cord, and the staff that is in his hand. Now, for him to give those things, it's like the cultural equivalent of you giving away like your passport, your credit card, and your phone. Some of you guys were like, I'm okay with the passport and the credit card, but I would never give anyone my phone. That's everything, and that's what I want you to feel right now. Jacob is willing to give everything away in order to use Tamar for sexual satisfaction. It's a purely physical desire. Now, because of that, it's really interesting that that Tamar's identity here switches a few times in the passage. Did you notice that? First, Tamar is a daughter-in-law to Judah. And then Tamar puts on the garments of a widow. And now in these verses, in verses 12 to 19, or really 18, Tamar bears the identity of a prostitute. No longer is Tamar viewed by Judah as an image-bearing daughter-in-law. No longer is Tamar viewed as a woman who deserves to be filled with worth and significance. Now she is nothing but an object. She's a prostitute. And her role is to fulfill for Judah a physical desire. And I want you to understand that, that this is what our sin does. Our sin turns human image-bearing humans into objects for our pleasure. And so understand then how this works. How does our sin turn other humans into kind of objects for our satisfaction and pleasure? Well, we understand this in the hookup culture, don't we? That's kind of what we live in today. If you could define our, our culture and especially our secular culture's view on sex, we would define it as this. It's a hookup culture. Well, that means that it, that it, it is a culture that believes that the, the greatest kind of sex, the most fulfilling and satisfying sex, is casual without any sort of emotional or relational commitment. That's what hookup culture is. That's why marriage is so devalued in our day, because it takes away the very joy uh, of what the hookup culture believes can satisfy And what it does is it turns two human beings who are created in the image of God and therefore have worth and significance, it turns those human beings into objects merely for the pleasure and satisfaction of another person. And see, this is the problem. When a man, and women will do this as well, but when a man treats a woman who is worthwhile, as nothing more than an object for sexual pleasure, they have objectified that woman and dishonored God. 
And in that moment, they have declared that this woman is worth nothing more than to be an object. This is the grounds for marriage inside of a, a, a marital covenant. Sorry, for, for sex inside of a marital covenant. Have you ever thought about why? Why did God design it to be that way? You see, the, the, the world's answer to that question of why sex is designed for the marriage bed is really, well, it's just a religious rule. That's just the way God made it. It's just kind of a random thing. And I want you to know that that is the farthest thing from the truth. Do you know why God created sex to be experienced within the marital covenant? It's because God values human beings. And in, as God looks up, upon the women in this very room, he longs that your worth be infinitely more than that of a sexual object. God's desire for you is that your worth is displayed by a husband who has committed himself to you, just as Jesus has eternally committed himself to the church. This husband has committed himself to you and longs to show you your worth, longs to show you how valuable you are, and longs to bring glory to God. By declaring that you are his treasure. It was like this from the beginning. You remember when Adam found Eve? Adam was lonely without Eve. And then Eve comes, and what does Adam say? This at last. This at last. Like a man who has found treasure in a field. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is what I need. This woman is so worthwhile to me. This is why the Proverbs declare that a wife is more valuable than rubies. Judah is willing to essentially objectify Tamar in order to get what he wants. This is the problem with pornography. Pornography takes a woman or a man who is a child created by God in the image of God, who is somebody's daughter or son, and creates them just to be an object for visual pleasure. Nothing more than that, less than human being. And it dishonors God who created us. Well, this is dishonoring to God, but it's not the only way that we might use other people. See, we can obviously we can see this very clearly in, in sexual sin, but there are other ways that we selfishly use other people. S some of us will, will only really hang around people that up our social status. You really see this in high school, but it doesn't really change when we become adults, does it? Like there's all these, in high school, it's so clear, isn't it? There's all these groups of crowds of friends, and some are popular, and there's kind of like the social hierarchy, and yet it doesn't really change. Some of us, we have a longing in our heart to live in a certain neighborhood because if we lived in that neighborhood, we would be given immediate social status to people when we told them where we lived. And so we're willing to use even people that we would call friends as sort of objects to up our social status. Others of us will do this financially. We'll, we will grow close to people only if they have a certain amount of money. Others of us will only surround ourselves with people that we can control through manipulation. Our idol is control, and if I can't control you and manipulate you, then I don't want you near me. See, all of us run into the danger of objectifying people for our own satisfaction. But sin does something else in us. Sin causes us to use other people to find fulfillment. And so here we find Tamar, who's very willing to mask her identity and make herself to be a prophet in order to find from Judah fulfillment. Now, it's an interesting chapter because if we're to speak well of anyone here, Tamar is the only one who does anything commendable. Finally, there is a Canaanite who is looking to the covenant family of God and saying, I want to be in that family because that's where blessing is found. And here we see that in Tamar. Why is Tamar so motivated to have a child by one of Judah's children? Well, I believe that the only answer that we can come to, why wouldn't she just go to another Canaanite man or another Canaanite woman, is that Tamar truly believes that the covenant blessing of God is with his people. And so she has motivation then to have a child within the covenant family of God. And so we find her waiting, according to Judah's word, waiting for Shelah to grow up. But we read there in verse 14, that the reason that she's willing to make herself a prostitute is because she sees that Sheila was grown up and that she had not been given him to her in marriage. 
Judah had deceived her. And so now she's very willing to make herself a prostitute in order for, to find fulfillment from Judah. Now, this speaks really relevantly to our culture as well, isn't it? Doesn't it? Because not only are men willing to objectify women in order to find satisfaction, so often, and this doesn't just happen for one gender, but often it is the case, that women are willing to sell their identity in order to find fulfillment from men. And the reason why the hookup culture uh, perpetuates really is because so often women are willing to sell away some of the identity that God has given to them and put on a mask, so to say, in order to get something that at the end of the day is a really good thing. It is right for a a woman to long for protection, to long to be cared for, to long for the emotional support of a husband. These are all good things that God designed to be experienced within marriage. The problem is the way that we seek to fulfill it. Now, I'm very aware of this. As a father of three daughters, I'm very aware that that culture is calling for my daughters to give themselves away in order to find fulfillment. And one of the things that parents need to do today, and that as a church we need to do for the women, especially for the young women in our presence, one of the things we need to do is constantly build them up with an image of their worth that's not found in their self-esteem, not found in looking in the mirror and telling themselves that they're beautiful, but found in the Christian worldview that they are worthwhile because they are created by God in his image. And that as a daughter of God, they are completely worthwhile. And they will live in a world which the world asks them to sell themselves to give themselves away in order to experience fulfillment. And so many will believe that fulfillment can only be found by giving away dignity, by giving away honor, by giving away what is meant to be reserved for a marital union in order to get something from the world. And I want you to know that if you're here this morning and you are pursuing satisfaction through sex outside of marriage, I want you to know that you will never find it. You cannot find it. It is always empty. The the satisfaction never will last. God has something so much better for you in marriage. Verses 20 to 23, we find Judah, he's ashamed. And so, as we said, he's willing to give all of these things away, his staff, his cord. He's willing to give all these things away in order to cover up what has happened so that he can be esteemed in the eyes of others. God's, God's really teaching us something important in this chapter about us as humans, isn't he? Here is a theological truth for you to pack away that's really important for you to understand. As human beings, we will give ourselves away to gain whatever we want to root our identity in. Let me say that again because it's really important that we understand this about human nature. You and I will give ourselves to whatever we want to root our identity in. Now, on the surface level, this is actually a pretty phenomenal thing about human nature, isn't it? Have you ever wondered? Have you ever wondered why some human beings can be so amazing at certain things? Every once in a while, Amber and I will go to the Cirque du Soleil. I don't know if you've ever been there, but you watch those things, and, and like these, these, I don't even know what you call them. Are they clowns? I don't know. Maybe they're clowns. Sounds a little freaky, but maybe that's what they are. These gymnasts, whatever, they've devoted their life to some, something so random, like running on a wheel or swinging on a bar, and they become so amazing at it that it just blows your mind that someone can devote themselves to be something and actually become it. And you've seen this in your own life, haven't? Sometimes you decide, like, I'm going to do something, and you work at it, you give yourself to it, your time, your energy, your resources, and you become good at it. Just recently, I decided that part of my identity that I wanted to root myself in was as a golfer. And so if you were to come over to my house, you would find in the back of my yard, this wasn't here a year ago, but it's here now, there's a driving range, there's golf clubs, there's golf balls, and I'm working on it every day. Now, the Illustration breaks down a little bit because I still can't be called a golfer. I'm horrible at it. But needless to say that as humans, when we decide that we want to devote ourselves to something, we can devote ourselves to it and become better at it. The the way that this becomes crooked is that the idols that we have in our life, the things that we want to be seen as by other people, no matter what, we'll always give ourselves to. This is why... So many of us spend so much time 
consumed with the thoughts of what other people think of us because we want our identity to be rooted in maybe a certain social status or we want people to see us a certain way. And so we'll go to bed at night and we'll think about conversations that we had with other people and maybe how we looked good or bad because constantly we're trying to get, get an identity of being like the smartest person in the room or the most popular person or the most funny person. And we're constantly reviewing ourselves and, and thinking and spending so much energy trying to be what we want to root our identity in. It's a fact of human nature. You give yourself to the identity you want to be rooted in. That's why when Jesus comes, you know what he calls you to do? He calls you not to have no identity. He calls you to place your identity in him so that now you give all your resources to the kingdom of God. And it's interesting, in Mark 10, verse 28, one time Peter comes to him, and, and Peter is beginning to notice how much he's given to Jesus. And it says, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus, we've given everything to you. And look what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. This is what Jesus says. When you are caught up with the kingdom of God, your identity is rooted in Jesus and you are giving yourself to him. And so the question we need to ask ourselves this morning as Christians is this. What are you giving yourself to? What are you giving your time, your treasures, your talents to? What are you giving your attention, your energy, your thoughts to? The Christian life is lived to give those things to the Lord. And we're, we're, we're promised something pretty astounding. That if you go from this room and you give those things to the Lord, you will receive a hundredfold. And I love what Jim Elliott says, who's a, who was a missionary. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And you need to know that if you leave this place in your life, you live your life for the Lord this week, you have lived a wise life. That has been the right choice. If you leave this place, though, and you seek to build up your own kingdom, you are nothing but a fool who has given what you will lose anyways to gain what you will also lose. This is the grace that we failed to display for others. And lastly in the story, I want you to see how we, we see what we need. We need grace from God. We come to this point in the question or in the story, and we, and we know what we need. The question is, how do we find it? We need grace. We discover it can only come from God. Now, Tamar, she's, she's really put in the wrong place, isn't she? It wasn't Tamar's fault that Judah wouldn't give Shelah to her. And Tamar's here waiting for 20 years, we're told, for 20 years for a husband from the line of Judah to be given to her so that she could have a covenant child. She's waiting and waiting and waiting, but it does not happen. And eventually she comes to understand that Judah will not do it, so she has to take things into her own hands. She's put into the wrong place, but all the evidence shows that her heart is for God's covenant promise to be fulfilled. She has a determination, and it's driven by a desire to secure a right standing before the Lord. And I wonder if you know this, that one of the ways that you access the grace of God is by by first being determined to access it. It's a choice that you have to make. God's grace will not be lavished over you if you do not first choose to be in the place of God's blessing. What Tamar spent her whole life was asking this question, how do I get under the covenant blessings of God? And she determined that the only way she could do it was by becoming a prostitute. And I need you to know that the path for you is much clearer and much simpler. God has told you exactly how to get under the covenant blessings of God. God has told you exactly how to get to the fountain of his grace. Do you know how to do it? You get to the foot of the cross. And there you bow before Jesus and you say, my faith is in Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And in that place, we're told in Ephesians 1.7, the grace of Jesus Christ is lavished over you. The path is clear for you. It's at the foot of the cross. This is where the covenant blessings of God are found. God has raised Jesus up. 2,000 years, he has brought you later, he has brought you to this place. 
for this time, to, 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 for a moment, meditate on this reality that Jesus died in order that you may receive grace. God has put it right in front of your face. The, the, the path is clear for you. The question is, are you determined to stand at the fountain of God's greatest grace, the blood of Jesus Christ? This is the source. I love that old hymn. It says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Sinner, there is a fountain. Do you run to it? Do you run to it? Notice that, that this grace, it flows to us when we are determined to be at the foot of the cross, but it also flows to us when we repent. And so I love this in verse 26. Tamar has revealed to Judah the evidence is laid out that it was him Judah says this, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah. And I love these small words, and he did not know her again. All of the evidence we have here is that Judah repents. And Judah shows us what true repentance is. True repentance is when you, you recognize that you've done wrong, when you recognize that it's your fault. Judah, couldn't he have blamed Tamar? Hey, Tamar, you're the one who dressed up as a prostitute. And that's what so many of us are doing with our sin. We're unwilling to acknowledge our sin because we say, well, my anger is because of my family. My sin is because of the situation I'm put in under work. And it's not until we recognize that the only person to blame for your sin is yourself that we can come to true repentance. And the third necessary ingredient for true repentance is that you must change. And so Judah does not sleep with Tamar again. Church, God is reminding us this morning that repentance is one of the sweetest blessings that we can possibly experience. It funnels God's grace into your life. And repentance is available to you today. I was so reminded of this, this uh, uh, such powerful illustration of what repentance does. Beside my house, there is a big giant water catcher. You know, the rain's on the roof and the rain goes down the eaves troughs with this giant, like, I'm talking massive water tank. And I opened it. It's kind of a new house for me, so I didn't, I assumed there's a bunch of water in there. I opened it and there's nothing but a trickle, but I could see all this water in the tank. And so I took a stick, and there's like whole Instagram channels that are like devoted to how satisfying this moment was. I took a stick and I shoved it in the spout and I started like, this is about as handy as I get, okay? My, my uh, plumbing snake is a stick. I just started swirling it around and all this gunk came shooting out. And then like, the pressure of this thing was it was flying meters across the driveway. There was so much water in there just waiting for the gunk to be cleared out. And as soon as you turn to God in repentance in this very moment, you know what happens? All that gunk of sin is cleansed from your heart so that the grace and blessing of God can flow once again. Grace comes through repentance. And lastly, I want you to see in this verse that grace comes only from Jesus. Everything in this verse is pointing to Jesus. Tamar, her time of her labor comes, and she has twins. And it's a pretty interesting story. If, if uh, Tamar were to come to women's ministry and share her birth story, I don't know if that's what they do at women's ministry. I don't think so. But if that's what they were to do, I think she would have the one that trumps them all. Because a hand comes out first, and then a scarlet thread is tied on that hand, but then the hand goes back in, and another baby comes out. Now, I know that this is not a labor that anybody wants, but it's the labor that Tamar had, but it points to this reality that God is choosing one of these children to be the one through whom the spiritual blessing of his people will travel. And it's very significant then that Matthew in his genealogy labels Tamar, this Canaanite woman, as the one through whom Jesus came. It's very interesting that when Jesus returns, you know what he's going to be called? He's going to be called the Lion of Judah. And these people, they do not deserve God's grace. And if God had not intervened in their life, they would have never, they would have never had any chance to survive. And yet, because of Christ, they find life, and we're told in Revelations 21 that on the gates of heaven will be written the 12 sons of Jacob's names, which is phenomenal because none of these people deserve it. But you know what also is phenomenal? That if your faith is in Christ, you know what Revelation says is that your name, your name is going to be in the book of life. That's a phenomenal truth that none of us, you or I, deserve. We don't get there by merit. We only get there by grace. 
My question for you this morning is this. Do you believe that? Do you believe that grace is the only solution to your greatest problems? That, that grace is the only thing that can redeem our society? That grace is the only thing that can redeem our lives? Everything we need is found in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, God, thank you for Jesus, and it is entirely in him, Lord, that we find all that we need. And so, Lord, I pray in this moment that you, as we sing your praise, would draw us even closer to you, Lord, that we would find ourselves, even in this moment, in the place where your grace is poured out as we declare the worth and value of your Son, in whom alone we can find salvation in life, God. We declare these truths to you. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.